Well, good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you this morning, and we are beginning a brand new series today on heaven. And most of us, I think, have lots of questions about heaven. Uh, A number of you have actually sent your questions to me as I've uh, requested over the last couple of weeks, and I just want to say to you, first of all, I'm thankful, and then to the rest of you, uh, please feel free to keep sending questions or to send questions if you haven't done that yet. I would still like to get more. Uh, If it's easier for you, you can just write them down on the Connect card and put them in the uh, offering bag uh, when it gets by, or uh, later on you can send me an email. I'd be grateful uh, to receive those. It'll help me focus the teaching that we're going to be doing over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Before we dive into this uh, sermon this morning, uh, one more thing. I want to give you a quick update on our Next Gen Spiritual Initiative, which we officially completed on June 30th. Uh, Many of you have continued to give generously. A number of families have actually uh, completed their commitments this month, and we have now received $2.402 million and some after that, which is 93.14% of our total pledges. And so as we've shared with you before, this is a great, amen, a great uh, result. And I just want to say thank you again and just to say every gift that you are continuing to give uh, is making a real difference as we are moving into the future. And so we're just thanking God uh, for that. Now, in this series, um, I'm using three key words to describe heaven. Real, live, forever. And we're going to be seeing over these next few weeks from God's word that heaven is a real place. And it is not at all like what many of us think. We're going to be learning that heaven is the place where we finally can experience real life. The place where we can truly enjoy that life forever. And we're really looking at this question, is heaven real? A lot of people are asking that question. A lot of people Think about this from time to time. Some of you may have seen the 2010 book called Heaven is for Real. It sold north of 10 million copies. It was made into a movie in 2014. And it's the story of a four-year-old Nebraska boy named Colton Burpo. In 2003, doctors failed to diagnose appendicitis, and his appendix ended up bursting. For several days, his body was being filled with poison, And he almost died. His parents got him to a hospital just in time for emergency surgery that saved his life. They went home and seemed to be getting back to normal when uh, several months after this, this little four-year-old boy began to tell his parents kind of an incredible story that he had gone to heaven. Now, he was four years old, so the details didn't emerge right at first. But as time went on, he would be playing and, and he would say things like, Mommy... I saw you when I was on the operating table. You were on your phone, and you were, you were crying, and you were talking to Grandma. And she was thinking, how would he know that? Because she was in a, a whole other room. He, he said, Daddy, I saw you on your knees in a church, and you were yelling at God. Why were you so angry? Well, his dad had actually been in the hospital chapel, and he was praying angry prayers to God, crying out. A few days after this, he said, Mommy, how come you never told me that you had a baby die in your tummy? And they had never told their four-year-old son 
uh, that they had had a miscarriage two years before that. He said, why didn't you tell me I had a little sister? I, I met her in heaven, and she can't wait to meet you and daddy someday. This, this kind of blew their minds, as you might well imagine. So what do you do with a story like that? Well, whatever you do with it, there is actually an entire genre of accounts like this. They're called near-death experiences or NDEs. In fact, they happen enough that in 2012, Newsweek ran a cover story called Heaven is Real, a doctor's experience of the afterlife. It's this first-hand account of a neurosurgeon from Harvard who claims to have visited heaven. And so with just these two accounts, you have a four-year-old boy and you have an Ivy League neurosurgeon claiming similar experiences. If nothing else, they just remind us that there is a universal hunger for heaven. There is a sense that all of us have that this life is not all that there is. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has set eternity in the hearts of people, and it means that each one of us have this deep, deep understanding that this life is not all there is, that there's more than this life, that our eyes cannot see everything that comprises reality. And, and when you think about it, it's true. Human instinct and biblical truth agree right here that there will come a day for each one of us when we will draw our last breath. And when that happens, the Bible says our souls will pass into eternity and we will be in eternity forever and ever and ever. Now it's interesting when you look through church history for most of the last 2,000 years followers of Christ have eagerly anticipated the day that they would pass into eternity. They looked forward to heaven. It was the ultimate goal of their life here on planet earth. Interestingly enough though for many many Christians maybe many of us if we're honest here in this room right now in recent years that's changed. And we may not want to admit it, but a lot of us are not really looking forward to heaven, at least not yet. And if that's where you are, I'm not going to ask you to confess out loud, <laughs> but I think this series is going to help you. I want to kick this series off by reclaiming heaven's reality, and there's an emphasis on this word reality. And as we do that, I think you're going to maybe understand why you might not have always been looking forward to heaven. I want to begin with Colossians 3, verses 1 and 4. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And I just want you to notice one thing from this passage. This Greek word translated set. The Greek word is the word zeteo. And it's a pretty intense word. It's a word about a search, a word about a quest. It's, it's a word that's also used in Luke 19.10 in the story of Zacchaeus when Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And that word seek is this Greek word, zeteo. It's a word that's used in the New Testament about searching for lost treasure, lost animals, lost coins. It's a relentless searching quest kind of word. In, in other words, if you pay attention right here, what God's word is telling us in Colossians 3 is that God commands you to aim your hearts 
your thoughts, your mind, your dreams toward heaven. That's a command. Are you obeying it? Some of you have never realized that it's a command. And I'm just kind of asking you, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever realized that God commands you to think deeply about your eternal future, to long passionately for heaven? See, this is a part of obeying God's word. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so many times I think we miss this. And you know what? This is something that Christians have done for most of the last 2,000 years. The early Christians did it all the time. You travel to the catacombs in Rome where many martyred Christians are are buried from those first three centuries, and you will see that almost all of the inscriptions are focused on heaven. They'll say, say things like these, in Christ, Alexander is not dead but lives, or one who lives with God, or he was taken up into his eternal home. These are actual inscriptions. They loved to think about their eternal home, about heaven, because it gave them hope in the present. One historian writes, pictures on the catacombs portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, children playing, feasting at banquets. You see, heaven was real to them. It was a real place. So here's the question, why? Why has heaven grown distant and remote for many of us today? Why is it true that many of us hardly ever think about heaven at all? Why is that? Well, that's actually our first question. You can write this down on your message notes. Why does heaven often seem unreal? Why does it often seem unreal? And I want to give you three reasons. I think there are more, but at least these three are true. The first one is false ideas about heaven. A lot of us have a lot of misguided, maybe distorted, sometimes just out-and-out false ideas about heaven. Uh, And a lot of them kind of come from popular culture, which means we're drawing our thinking from the wrong source. I'll give you one example uh, some of you are maybe into Far Side, that cartoon. This is a pretty famous cartoon that uh, Gary Larson, the cartoonist for Far Side, did a, a, a number of years ago. He showed this guy with angel wings sitting on a cloud. He was doing nothing. There's like no one else in the picture. He's all by himself. He's got this totally bored expression on his face. And you can read the caption. He says, wish I'd brought a magazine. That's a view of heaven that's out there. And that's what many people think. In the movies, I don't know if you've noticed this, but heaven, when it's portrayed, is always kind of all white and all light, and everyone's wearing white robes, and there's fog everywhere. Have you noticed nobody has feet in heaven? (laughs) (laughs) And there are harps, and that's about it. There's like nothing to do. And here's the reality, and it'll be good for you if you will admit this to yourself. A lot of us feel conflicted about heaven. We know we're supposed to be excited about it. The Bible says it's an incredible place, but we're not so sure. <laughs> and we feel kind of guilty about not being excited about going to heaven. Some of us end up with that, by now, really old movie agreeing with the title, Heaven Can Wait. I wonder if you realize that maybe your ideas about heaven aren't really what it is. And the truth of the matter is we can't just blame popular culture. I think these false ideas often come from within the church. I'll give you just one example. How many of you have ever heard heaven described as one long, never-ending church service? I've actually heard things said like, heaven will be like one never-ending hymn sing in the sky. I think the first time I heard that I was 10 years old. 
And I was thinking, that sounds like hell. Not more recently, you remember a few years ago, we used to sing a song, I love this song, I could sing of your love forever. Remember that song? And like, that's true, but do we have to? (laughs) (laughs) That's what some of you were thinking, right? I mean, one hymn after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. I mean, that's the gospel, the good news. That's why Jesus died, so I could go to an eternal worship night. And then we wonder if we're not singing, then what are we actually going to do? Here's what one very faithful Christian said about about heaven. Can I be honest with you, Pastor? I always thought heaven sounded boring. What purpose do we have there? When I used to think of eternity, it actually made me cry. Forever and ever doing nothing sounds more like hell to me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you ever feel like that? And what we're going to see in this series is that Bible actually teaches something very, very different. That heaven is a place of activity and purpose and meaning and significance and growth. It's going to have cities and gardens. It is not this ethereal, otherworldly, kind of foggy dream. It's more and more like real life at its very best without any of the pain and the frustration that we know in this broken, fallen world today. Second... Heaven often seems unreal because of life's distractions. And the truth is, where we live today, for us, life is pretty good. I mean, we may think we're struggling sometimes in our context, but compared to the vast majority of people who have ever lived throughout history in the world, we are healthier and wealthier by far. I mean, just think of one little thing, life expectancy. If you just go back 100 years to 1900, this is in America You know, so we're not even going to other places where it would have been even lower. But in America, in 1900, life expectancy was 47. 47. I would almost be dead now. (laughs) What? (laughs) See, now it's 78. And some of you do CrossFit, so it's like 85. (laughs) I am um, hoping to live to 90. Kind of depends on what I do with bacon. (laughs) We'll see how that goes, works out. Um, But we have life pretty good, right? I mean, we really do have so many luxuries. Our iPhones and our smart TVs keep us endlessly entertained. We live in bigger houses than ever before. As Christians, you know, we, we, we have these vacations that we're always planning and our investments that we're monitoring. And we do believe as followers of Christ that whatever good things we have, I mean, they are gifts to us from God, blessings from God, but isn't it true that sometimes the gifts become more real to us than the giver? And it's totally that way in our culture. I mean, everybody in our culture knows that real life happens here and now, right here on this planet. I mean, have you ever noticed the songs about heaven that are out in popular culture? I looked up some songs about heaven, and... um, The interesting thing is that most of these songs about heaven are actually about earth. Uh, This goes back a ways. (laughs) Truth is, I kind of had to go back a ways because most of the more recent songs about heaven are about sex, and I can't really quote the words in church. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? So this one's kind of an oldie, and those of you who nod your head and smile right now are going to reveal your age. John Denver had a song, Almost Heaven. 
West Virginia. I heard the old people speaking there. It's like, but I hear that lyric and I go, are you kidding me? West Virginia? Let's see. Streets of gold, streets of coal. Son of God, coal miner's daughter. I mean, West Virginia, what? And then a, a, a few more years, you know, towards us, Belinda Carlisle's immortal poetry. Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. So heaven, it's about earth. And Brian Adams had a song lying here in your arms, I'm in heaven. That was one of the songs where heaven is compared to sex that I could actually quote from. But this is really where our culture is. In fact, with people who have no idea or no concept that anything is real beyond this material world, sex has kind of become the replacement for heaven. I even found a, a country song by Hank, Hank Williams Jr., and I'm not making this up. It said, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. What? <laughs> yeah, I too am longing for an eternity of mosquitoes and sauna-like humidity, right? <laughs> By the way, if you're from the South, and you should know my roots are in the South, if you're from the South and you want to send an angry email, just send it to jmills at southwinds.org. <laughs> but the point is, and I have a point, we do, we do look at life here. And sometimes it is so good that heaven seems dim. We're just not that interested in heaven. And then third, I think heaven can seem unreal because of our culture's skepticism. Our culture is secular. Lots of people do say that this cosmos, that's all there is, just the material world. You live, you die, you're dirt. And so they say we should just focus on today. I wonder how many of you have ever read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books, these great books, C.S. Lewis uh, describes this, this, in, this issue in the, the book, The Silver Chair. And it's got these characters at this point, uh, Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum. They get kidnapped by an evil witch. She takes them deep underground. They are captured. They are captives there for weeks and weeks. The witch starts trying to convince them that there is no above-ground reality, no sun, uh, no grass. None of those things really exist. Now, here's a picture of Jill and and Eustace and Puddleglum, and, and, and the witch, she laughs at what she calls their child's game of pretending there's a world above. And she says to them hypnotically, there ne was never any world but mine. And they start repeating after her, there was never any world but yours. She says softly, there is no overworld, there's no sky, no sun, no Aslan. But then suddenly, in this, as this is happening, Puddleglum, who's the tall one in the picture, kind of snaps out of it. And he says, wait, wait. And I love his reasoning here. He says, suppose we have only dreamed or made up all these things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars, and Aslan himself, suppose we have. Then all I can say is that the made-up things seem a great deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. He says, it strikes me as a funny thing when you think of it. We're just babies making up a game. And four babies playing a game can make up a play world that licks your real world hollow. See, sometimes I think we're kind of like those fictional characters. Sometimes we can even start to think maybe this world is all there is. But even then, deep down in us, something 
inside of us knows there's something else, right? That this world is not all that there is. Now, if those are reasons that heaven feels far away for us, how can we reclaim the reality of heaven? Well, the answer is going to God's word, looking at the truth about heaven. And let's do this next. Secondly, what can I anticipate in heaven? I'm going to just introduce some things to you that we're going to get into more deeply in the weeks ahead. But what can we look forward to in heaven? And I'm talking about the real heaven, the true heaven, the Bible's description of heaven, not what we we see in the movies. I'm going to give you a brief introduction to some things that we'll dive into more deeply. Three realities the Bible tells us we can anticipate and look forward to. Number one, we will be real people with real bodies, not disembodied ghosts, not angels floating on clouds. First uh, John 3, 2 is one of the verses that gives us a key to unlocking what we're going to be like in heaven. Maybe you've read this and never thought about this implication. Here's what John writes. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is referring to Jesus. And what was Jesus like after his resurrection? In his glorified body, the Bible said he could be touched. He walked around. He could talk. He cooked breakfast for the disciples one time. He was physical. He had amazing powers. He did things we couldn't do. But that was because he had a glorified body. But it was a glorified human body. The Bible teaches he still is in that body in heaven forever and ever. He wasn't a ghost. Now just think about this. We do not desire to be disembodied ghosts. And in fact, in every culture around the world, the idea of being a disembodied spirit, that's the stuff of nightmares. It's not what we want. And here's the reason why. God didn't make us to desire that. God made us with bodies. We are embodied creations of his. And that's one of the reasons why heaven might seem terrible to you if that's what you think it's like. See, what God made you to desire is a real body, a body with amazing abilities. Just think about this. When, when you dream, especially when you're a kid, what, what do you dream of when you dream about your, your body, when your body's involved in the dreams? I mean, you dream of being able to fly, right? Being able to walk through walls or do feats of strength. You don't dream of being a, a ghost, when little kids play, what do they play? They, they play like they have super bodies. They're, they want to be superheroes with superpowers. Why? Well, that's the desire God has planted in each of our hearts. We long for what God originally created. We're broken and fallen. We know things, that things don't work right in this world. We long for a perfect body. Well, that's what heaven will bring about. There's another passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It says, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We will be changed, but into real bodies, real glorified bodies, not into ghosts. And we will be with other real people who also have real glorified bodies. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now circle that phrase, together with them. You think about that. Who are you looking forward to seeing? I think some of us are kind of afraid that heaven will be like some kind of a Vulcan mind meld where we all get 
assimilated into the Borg, you know, or whatever. And we're just these disembodied spirits and minds, and we won't be able to touch and hold and experience, again, those that we've lost. But I think the Bible says, yes, we will. Have you ever seen any of those, um, what I'll call them reunion videos that just keep popping up on Facebook? Some of you share them, you know, that's why I see them. And uh, there's different kinds of them. That I feel like the most common kind is the, the soldier that's been in Afghanistan for a year or more. And for whatever reason, somebody brings him home, but they don't tell his wife, they don't tell his kids. And, you know, they're going uh, to, you know, unveil this reunion in some public place where they can, you know, film it and put it on social media and make a lot of money probably. I wonder sometimes. But uh, you, you ever seen those? And, you know, we watch them. Why, we, we, we love those kind of things because... They just remind us of some truths. There's this great joy. People are weeping and sometimes falling down. And we can just imagine the party that goes on later. And I am telling you today, please hear me today. In heaven, you will experience that. You will find yourself touching and holding and hugging loved ones. Hearing the voices of people you miss so much right now. This is imagine. Who are you hoping to see? Again, I mean, for me right now, of course, it's my dad who died last November 1. For some of you, it's a spouse. You've lost them. You long to see them. For some of you, it's a child or a grandchild. It's a brother or a sister. And it's just to hug them and hold them and see them again. Now, not with grief anymore, but with, with joy I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if what Colton Burpo said actually happened, but some of you have experienced miscarriages. And I do think you're going to get to meet that little baby, that son or that daughter, meet them really for the first time. See, this is very, very personal for many of us, and it is what heaven promises, friendships that have been rudely interrupted by death are going to start again and then continue forever. I think I could stop the message right now, but you know, it gets better. There's more. You see, we'll have real tangible bodies in a real uh, reunion, and we will be, secondly, in a real place, a real place where we walk around and we go places and we do things. Think about this. Very familiar words. John 14, 2. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Now, pay attention to what he's saying. Look at those words. He says house. He says rooms. He says place. That Greek word place is the word topos. We get topography from it. It's a word that's used to describe landscape. Jesus deliberately is choosing physical words to describe heaven. He didn't have to do that. I think he did that because he wanted to give his disciples something tangible to look forward to. Now, I need to add something here that will explain parts of what you've read in the Bible, and we'll talk more about this later. Uh, the truth is, when we die on this earth, first of all, our spirits, our souls go to a place that is spiritual because our bodies are here in the grave. That place is what theologians call the intermediate heaven. It's heaven, but it's not the, the form, the shape, the state of heaven that will be in existence forever. It's, it's temporary, even though it's lasting 
at this point for thousands of years. And we're going to explain more about that next week. You know, what's happening in heaven right now. But one day when God wraps this whole thing up like we see at the end of the Bible, our bodies will be resurrected with Christ's body. And like Christ's body, our spirits will be reunited with our resurrected, glorified body. And God will make a new, physical, tangible place for us to live forever. And the Apostle John describes it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That's going to be a place, by the way, with lots of stuff to do. We're going to see more in the weeks ahead how it's a place filled with plants and lakes and rivers and kingdoms even. Why? Because God is restoring the earth. God is redeeming the earth he created. He's not just redeeming you and me. He's redeeming all of creation. And that means the whole earth is going to be redeemed from the curse of sin. I mean, how incredible will that be? I mean, just try to understand a a little bit of this. And I want you to do this by thinking of some of the wonderful, beautiful things that we can see and we get to experience here in the state of California. I mean, and we, are, we are blessed in terms of God's creation here, aren't we? I mean, just think of Yosemite. Half Dome, El Capitan, Yosemite Falls. When you, when you drive through the tunnel into Yosemite Valley and you have to stop and get out of your car and stare and gasp and wonder, right? I mean, just think of Blue Lake Tahoe and the, the granite Sierras, the majesty of them. Just think of the redwoods. My wife and I, Dan and I, went on a hike yesterday in Oakland. There's some incredible redwood stands in a park there. It's called Redwood Regional Park. It's kind of your clue. Um, and we hike through that. Incredible trees and redwoods. We have redwoods. They're the largest living organisms on the planet. I mean, just think of all that. Think of Bakersfield. Wait, wait. That's a different sermon. That's a different sermon. Um, think of all the cliffs and the vistas on the Pacific Ocean. Big Sur, Morro Bay, on and on and on. All those incredible views of the Pacific. All of the beautiful beaches. And that's just one state. That's just one small piece of all that God has created. I mean, we really could stay here all day talking about just the beauty of God's creation in our broken, fallen world. And so the Bible says, the new earth will be far better. Now, personal opinion, I think there's room for some sanctified imagination on this. And I think sometimes a lot of Christians are afraid to imagine what heaven will be like. The Bible doesn't tell us all the details that we'd like to have, but they're afraid to imagine some because they don't want to say more than Scripture, and we should be concerned about this. But I, I think Scripture gives us a, a good deal of room on this. It, it describes heaven in the broadest terms when it it talks about God redeeming earth. And if God is redeeming earth, this earth that Paul says right now is groaning to be redeemed, part of the creation that's been broken and fallen, it's going to be made new. I mean, can you, can you begin to imagine what a brand new, totally pristine, untainted by sin world, redeemed fully, is going to be like? 
I mean, we, I don't think we should say, well, that's just beyond our imagination and, and, and then make heaven into this blurry, unfocused, unappealing cloud thing. See, a lot of people have done that, and the truth is that's a lot more inaccurate than what you'll come up thinking about what I'm going to say in just a minute. I, I think you should go ahead and, and read God's word and let that kind of inform your thinking about a new earth. Here's a homework assignment, okay? Uh, this week, get out into God's creation. And by the way, I, I, I would advise you, I think we should start referring to the world around us as creation rather than nature. I'm not saying we ban the word, but you understand that word nature makes it sound like it's just the way it is and it's separate, where we know that what we see that is, quote, natural is actually creation, and that word keeps us focused on where, where our world came from. But just get out into that. I mean, take a walk somewhere. Look at the hills. Look at the trees. Look at the forest, if you can get into one. Go to the ocean. Look at some flowers. And try to imagine all of that in pristine condition. Flowers unwilted. Grass undying. There are no mosquitoes. Yes, like there are out there right now. The sky is blue and there is absolutely no pollution. And and people are smiling and relaxed and joyful. They're not depressed and anxious and angry. And then think about family and friends who love Jesus and are with them, him now. And then picture you with them, walking with all of them in that perfect place. Every one of you with perfectly tuned bodies, stronger than an Olympic decathlete. You can throw a football 300 yards. You could hit a baseball 600 feet. You could shoot better than Steph Curry, whatever you want to do, you know, and you're walking along and you see a tree and you get to it and you reach up and you pick some fruit and you take a bite of that fruit with your glorified mouth and it is the sweetest thing you've ever tasted. And now with your glorified nose, you smell something and it's like even better than orange blossoms, even better than freshly baked bread. It's just this feast. And you listen to sounds with your glorified ears. And there's a party up ahead. And people are having fun in this big, beautiful house. And at the feast, there's Jesus. And he's physically there. And you fall to your knees in worship. And Jesus pulls you up. And Jesus embraces you. And you know what you feel like? You're perfectly complete. For the first time. You know that you finally found what you have been looking for all of your life because you're with the person you were created to be with and you're in the place that you were made for. Your body is finally what it was meant to be. And you know what? There is a biblical basis for every single thing I've just described. And we're going to talk about those things over the next few weeks. But I wanted to talk about it today. I wanted to stir your hearts and your imagination today. Because at the end of this series, my hope is the next time someone says, I can't begin to imagine what heaven will be like, that you will be able to say, well, I can. I can begin to imagine it. Can you see how 
how believing in the real heaven, the true heaven that the Bible talks about, not the heaven that comes, you know, in the movies or in other descriptions, how that kind of belief and confidence can make a difference in the kind of life that you live right now, the joy that you experience right now. I mean, it really just puts it all into perspective. Real people, real bodies in a real place, but most importantly, we will experience the real presence of God. God will be there in a way far beyond everything we know now. Let me tell you one of my favorite true stories. I, I first read it and told it over 20 years ago. A man named William Montague Dyke went blind at age 10, and he was blind for about 20 years, and as an adult, he got engaged to be married, and while he was engaged, the doctors said that they could attempt this new surgical technique that, that might, just might be able to cure his blindness, and so he agreed to undergo this surgery. They performed the surgery. Afterward, they bandaged his eyes, but then William makes this unusual request. Gambling that the surgery would be successful, he said, I want my first sight to be my bride's face coming down the aisle in her flowing white dress. And so he asked that they remove the gauze from his eyes during the wedding ceremony when his bride was coming down the aisle. So the day comes, William is escorted to the front of the church by his dad. His eyes are still wrapped in gauze. Everybody's watching uh, the, the bridal march begins, his bride comes down the aisle, and that dramatic moment arrives, and William's dad starts carefully to unwrap the bandages. And just as his bride gets to the front, the bandages fall off, his eyes flutter open, and his heart jumps as he slowly focuses on the first thing he has seen in two decades, the radiant face of his bride. The people who were there said that William, overcome by emotion, begins to weep. And then he whispered to his bride, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Do you see that that is what you are going to experience in heaven? The Apostle Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. But then we will know fully and perfectly. We shall see him, Jesus, as he is. And if you're able to talk, maybe after a hundred years of just being in awe, I think that you will say to Jesus, you are more beautiful and glorious than I ever imagined. The Apostle John put it this way, Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, the presence of God. You see, once you embrace the truth that heaven is real, and you begin to live out of that, it changes your life, it really does. It, it makes all the difference in the world, it really does. Well, let me unfold that, that's the third question. When heaven is real to me, what changes in my life? 
first thing that changes, the Bible says, is the way I think about my possessions. Someone once said, I don't know who first said it, you've probably heard it, but they said, you'll never see a hearse pulling a (laughs) U-Haul. So true. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, the Bible says that God graciously gives us all things that he's created for our enjoyment. Everything has a purpose. It's not wrong to have some things, but we must keep them in their place. We must always remember that whatever we have, it's going to rust out and wear out and get taken out. So don't pig out. You know, let heaven be your consuming point of reference, your perspective. And, you know, this is why people who are truly setting their hearts and their minds on things above are generous. They always are. And this is why people who aren't generous are thinking more about here and now on this earth. This is always true. You can rationalize it in your life any way you want, but this is true. When you believe in heaven and it's real to you, it changes your view of your possessions. Another thing it changes is the way I look at people. I realize that they are not just biological machines that will die in 70 to 80 years. They, these are people created by God who are going to live forever, and so therefore they are very, very precious. I want you to listen to these profound words. This is again from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And we start seeing people in light of eternity. Pretty soon that nameless person in traffic or at the mall or the clerk at the post office, suddenly we begin to realize these are people created and loved by God And you begin to love them and to value them more. This is behind the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, Paul had seen heaven in a vision. He knew that it was more than about just winning a religious debate. It was about helping people know God, meet God, and live forever with God in heaven. This changes how we look at people. Here's a third thing that changes, the way I persevere through pain. If you really grasp heaven, what it truly is, it changes the way you face the pain in your life, whatever your pain is. You say, well, why is that true? Well, one word is perspective. Perspective. You end up being able to put this life into perspective because you're looking at this life through the lens of eternity, and that changes everything. Some of you right now might say, I just have unrelenting, unending physical pain. And I am so sorry. And and I know that I probably have no idea what you're going through. But I can tell you Jesus does. He understands. 
And Jesus promises that one day, whether in this life or in eternity, he's going to take your pain away. And if you believe that and you know that and you live out of that, as hard as it may be right now, this changes your life today because you know the pain isn't going to last forever. Amen? Maybe you think, well, I've lost someone to death. And grief is great pain. But isn't it true, knowing you will see them again, you'll be reunited with them again one day, changes your perspective. And maybe someone here today says, well, I have a, I have a terminal diagnosis. Not to make light of that at all, but the truth is we all have a terminal diagnosis. We are all going to die. But the ultimate promising diagnosis of heaven puts even that in perspective, doesn't it? It puts all pain in perspective when you know that one day, one day you will be in a place that is more beautiful and more joy-filled than you can even begin to imagine. This is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, therefore we do not lose heart for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That is perspective. Paul also says, Romans 8, 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that were revealed in us. This is God's word, friends. Perspective. Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who has, was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And you know, in the end, the big question is, if heaven's this great, then how do I get there? You want to make sure you're there, Right? Uh, there's a cemetery in Amish country in Indiana. It has a gravestone, an old gravestone with this inscription. Maybe you've heard about this before, but this inscription on this gravestone says, Pause, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. A little creepy. More than 100 years ago, after this had been up for a while, somebody walked by, and we don't know who it was, but they scratched these words and added them to this gravestone where I just read. They wrote, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> like, we need to know, where am I going, right? How do I get to heaven? And, you know, the Bible says you can know for sure. I'm going to give you three verses as we close. There's a phrase in each one. Pay attention. You'll see it as we read. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't work your way to heaven. It's a gift. Revelation 22, 17, right, right after all of these beautiful descriptions of heaven, the last couple chapters of the Bible, there's this invitation to go to heaven. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. 
You might want to circle, take the free gift. I mean, why wouldn't you take the free gift of heaven? What reason could there be? I mean, the only reason that some of you may be thinking right now is that, you know, after all I've done, I, I, I know I don't deserve heaven. And guess what? If you think that, you're right. You don't deserve it. But the good news is no one does. And God in his grace still offers. Final verse, Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what could keep us out of heaven? It's the same thing for every single one of us, and it is our sin. We've all sinned. The Bible says all we need to do to spend eternity with God in heaven is realize our sin, confess our sin, repent of our sin, turning from our sin, and then trust in what God's son Jesus Christ did on the cross where he died and paid the penalty for the sins we had committed. We, we make him our Lord. We receive him as our Savior. He grants us his life. And we know that he can do that because he died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. He defeated death and he lives forevermore. He, seat, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven, at the hand of the Father. That's how you get to heaven. And some of you already know that. Maybe you made that commitment years ago. But for some of you today, that may be something that you've not settled in your life. And so how could I talk about heaven without giving you an, ish, an opportunity to settle that issue today? Would you bow your heads as we pray?